Um, all right, so what we began considering the play on um, last Friday by looking at the private behind the scenes issues that explain what goes on in the first scene of Richard II. Um, and what goes on in the first scene of Richard II is there for public consumption. Um, what, let's begin by talking about the significant failure that occurs in the second scene. So let's, I, I want to give this as a general um, rule about all Shakespearean drama, maybe a general rule about all drama. When you have scenes in a play, when you have scenes in a movie with more than one person, in Shakespeare this is even true if you only have one person, but in general if you have more than one person, dialogue is always about the people in a scene trying to get each other to do things. Dialogue, the reason that people speak is that they want someone else to do something. And often, in fact, probably close to always, what will happen is the people engaged in dialogue will be trying to get each other to, each other to do things. One person will want um, the other character to do one thing, and that second character will want the first character to do something else, the else may be something opposite, it may be something similar, it may be something with some similarities and some differences. But dialogue is always about characters trying to get each other to do things. Um, I will say that this is true without exception, that dialogue is always about characters trying to get each other to do things. Um, and always, in some way, there has to be resistance to that desire, because if there isn't resistance, there's no need for the dialogue. And because there's desire and resistance, there's always some kind of negotiation. That negotiation will either succeed or fail. In Act 1, Scene 2, it fails. That is, the Duchess of Gloucester fails to get John of Gaunt to take arms against a sea of Richard. No, that won't work. To take arms against um, Richard, to, to, um, to um, punish him and to attempt... Um, to um, overthrow him on the basis of what he's done to her husband. Um, Act 1, Scene 1 is also, and at much greater length, a scene in which characters are trying to get each other to do things. We'll do it quickly, we'll look at it quickly, although um, I have been known to spend three or four weeks on this scene, but we won't. Um, we'll do it quickly. Um, to notice exactly how good both Richard and Bolingbroke are at this task and this skill and this dynamic of getting others to do things. So what happens, we now know from Act 1, Scene 2, that what's happening in Act 1, Scene 1 is Bolingbroke is accusing Mowbray of having his uncle and Richard's uncle, Woodstock, murdered. And he is saying to Richard, Mowbray is a traitor. He killed your uncle. 
you therefore must punish him. And what we now know is that Bolingbroke knows that Richard has actually had his uncle killed. And the accusation against Mowbray on Richard's behalf is a bit of political machination, a bit of political manipulation designed to put Richard under pressure. So when Bolingbroke says in his accusation that um, everything that Mowbray has done or everything that's wrong with the country um, is because of what Mowbray has done, that Mowbray is the first spring and source of all that is wrong in this country. Um, what he's actually essentially doing is saying um, the buck stops with him. Obviously, it can't go any higher because the only person that it could go higher to is Richard himself, and I would never accuse Richard of being a criminal. This is Bolingbroke's version of Gaunt saying, correction lieth in those hands which made the fault that we cannot correct. Um, what Mowbray, it, what, excuse me, what, what Bolingbroke is saying is, um, I would never accuse you of being a traitor to this country, to England, to, to the capital K, King, um, but I will go as close to you as I possibly can by accusing Mowbray of doing it. So this is um, Act 1, Scene 1, around line 87. This is the accusation. Look what I speak. My life shall prove it true that Mowbray hath received 8,000 nobles in name of lendings for your highness soldiers, the which he hath detained for lewd employments like a false traitor and injurious villain. So first accusation is embezzlement, that Mowbray got all this money from the government that he was supposed to put to public use, but he kept it for himself and for lewd employments like a false traitor and injurious villain. He goes on, besides I say and will in battle prove or here or elsewhere to the furthest verge that ever was surveyed by English eye that all the treasons for these 18 years complotted and contrived in this land fetch from false Mowbray their first head and spring. So Mowbray is the source of everything that has gone wrong in this land for the last 18 years. Further I say, and further will maintain upon his bad life to make all this good, that he did plot the Duke of Gloucester's death, suggest his soon believing adversaries, and consequently, like a traitor coward, slewest out his innocent soul through streams of blood, which blood, like sacrificing Abel's, cries even from the tongueless caverns of the earth to me for justice and rough chastisement. So those are the accusations. Now notice line 101. He plotted the Duke of Gloucester's death and suggested his soon-believing adversaries. If you have the Norton, they gloss suggest, the word suggest there um, as in sight, 
Um, which is right to the, the extent that suggestion here isn't like a waiter suggesting um, that you have the um, risotto tonight because, um, it's because Gary has made it with a lovely cream sauce. Um, the suggestion here is rather the suggestion that you get in very strong accounts of hypnosis. That is, um, through very strong suggestion, you can put an idea into a person's mind that then they act upon. So incite isn't quite the right word, um, but the right word is something like take a kind of Svengali-like control over his soon-believing adversaries. That is, they're quick to believe something that they shouldn't believe. Um, who is those adversaries? Anyone? Who actually had Gloucester killed? <coughs> Richard. So this is as close as he comes to saying he got you to commit a horrible crime by having Gloucester killed. And he then insists again on the horror of the crime when he says that Gloucester's blood was sluiced, his soul was sluiced out through streams of blood. That's a very vivid image. Um, as though he's been cut simultaneously by one of those like, like hard-boiled egg cutters that you can get on late-night TV. Um, his body's been turned into a sluice, and the blood has been spouting out. Which blood, like sacrificing Abel's, cries to me for justice? So Abel was not killed by some stranger. Mowbray, if you looked at um, the... Um, the genealogical tree that I pointed out to you at the beginning of last class, Mowbray isn't on that tree. He's a friend of Richard's. He's a lord. He's um, a, a baron or a baronet. Um, he's someone whom Richard relies on, but he's not a blood relation. Abel, however, was killed by his brother Cain. So the very idea that the killing of Gloucester is to be compared to the murder of Abel is another way that Bolingbroke is putting pressure on Richard, saying he was killed by a close kinsman. This is a story that Shakespeare is interested in. In Hamlet, Claudius will say of the murder of his brother, Hamlet Sr., Hamlet's father, that it hath the primal eldest curse upon it a brother's murder. Nothing can be worse, says Claudius, than killing your own brother. And Bolingbroke is saying something similar. This is a version of what you're going to find even more intensely in Hamlet later. The crime here is a crime which is like incestuous murder. It's killing a kinsman killing someone who is closely related to you, killing someone who is almost like your brother, your uncle, who is that closely related. And therefore, I must punish this. So that's Bolingbroke putting pressure on Richard through what he attempts and is about to succeed at getting out of Mowbray. Um, Richard immediately tries to make a little bit of a joke of this. How high a pitch his resolution soars, he says. 
That is, he's essentially saying, listen to him. Um, listen to how excessive he's being. Okay, Mowbray, what can you say in response? Um, and Mowbray says, well, I'm about to insult a blood relation of yours. Is that okay? Um, so this question of blood relation comes up. It's really insisted upon. And Richard says, this is his move in the chess game that he's playing with Bolingbroke. Mowbray, impartial are our eyes and ears. That is, I'm above the question of whether someone is related to me or not. Were he my brother, nay, my kingdom's heir, as he is but my father's brother's son, now by my scepter's awe I make a vow such neighbor nearness to our sacred blood should nothing privilege him. So notice that what he's immediately doing, the first marker he's setting down is he's trying to make this relationship a close one. He's trying to say that Gloucester, my uncle, is like Abel, my brother, but he's not. He's farther away than that. Plus, as king... I set aside this question of blood relations, the personal or family question, which is not public, but only private. And I also say that as for Bolingbroke, he's not my kingdom's heir. He's only my, um, bro my father's brother's son. He's way far away from me. So you don't have to worry about him. Now again, this isn't said for Mowbray's benefit. It's said to try to put Bolingbroke in his place. So one thing <coughs> that we can see already, um, lots of people don't get this about Richard II. Most critics don't get this about Richard II. One thing we can see already is that two things are happening in the first scene which is Bolingbroke is already thinking about what he can do to become king. And Richard already knows that Bolingbroke is already plotting. Lots of people see that Bolingbroke is already plotting. Most people don't see that Richard is already aware of this, but he is. The game that they're playing is a game whose stakes they know from the very beginning. And they have different talents in this game, and they also have different resources in this game. Uh, um, to put it in the terms that we saw from Act 1, Scene 2, the talents and the resources that Richard has is the older generational loyalty that he counts on because the older generation regards the king as sacred. The talents and the resources that Bolingbroke has are the talents and the resources of someone who is not superstitious, that is, does not believe that the king is sacred and does not believe that the fact that Richard is a king and declares himself as sacred makes him invulnerable. So Bolingbroke is playing a highly manipulative game where nothing that he says is trustworthy. Whereas the game Richard is playing is a very open game where he's essentially saying, 
I am too sacred a figure for anyone to try to take power from me. But he knows the game that Bolingbroke is playing. The one thing that he does keep to himself or to his friends that he does keep for private conversation is his own calculation about what's going on. In public, he seems not to be a calculating person. But he is calculating, and his calculation is he had better seem to be a king because he's a sacred figure. Bolingbroke is calculating also, and his calculation is that he'd better seem not to want to become king. He, too, had better seem to regard the kingship as sacred, even though he doesn't. Notice, however, what Bolingbroke has done to Mowbray, who is a beer short of a six-pack. Um, Mowbray responds after Richard gives him permission to. <coughs> Mowbray says, Then, Bolingbroke, as low as to thy heart, through the false passage of thy throat, thou liest. So now he's going to prove that Bolingbroke is wrong, and he falls into Bolingbroke's trap here, which this is the kind of speech that you're saying, okay, a lot of boring history here. I'm going to read it quickly. But notice what happens. What he says is three parts of that receipt I had for Calais dispersed I duly to his highness soldiers. So you say that I got those 8,000 nobles that I was supposed to use for the public good and that I kept them for myself? Wrong. 6,000 of them I used the way I was supposed to. Hmm. Well, okay. And then the other part, the last 2,000, reserved I by consent for that my sovereign liege was in my debt upon remainder of a dear account since last I went to France to fetch his queen. Now swallow down that lie. Okay, quick thing to notice is the queen is here established as a figure in the play. Um, she's going to appear in a few scenes. Right now we know of her existence and we know that she's come from France and we know that there are political issues that have to do with Richard's relationship to her. And we also know or perhaps we think we know that it's not a love marriage which is going to be important, not terribly important, but important later, um, important both to the tragedy of the play and to the politics of the play. But notice immediately what Mowbray has said to refute Richard, I mean to refute Bolingbroke is 6,000 of those nobles went to the soldiers the way they were supposed to. The other 2,000 I took as the repaying of a loan that I gave to Richard because he was in my debt for this money. And he was in my debt because I lent him the money so he could get the queen. Um, but what really matters here is that we're seeing a kickback scheme. That is, Richard borrows money from Mowbray, probably uses it, some of it legitimately, but some of it not. And then to pay Mowbray back, he lets Mowbray get money from the public treasury. So Mowbray doesn't have this money. Mowbray hasn't cheated the public, hasn't cheated the English who have been taxed for this money. Um, Richard's high taxes are going to be what people complain about and what causes the rebellion against him. 
um, in a couple of scenes, but it's not Mowbray who's been the beneficiary of these high taxes, it's Richard. Richard has figured out a way to get money from someone by giving them the power to pay themselves back through taxes. So this is essentially a sweetheart deal. Nothing changes in the way government monkeys with the relationship of private and public money. But notice what Bolingbroke has managed to do. He's managed not to accuse Richard of anything, but to get Mowbray to say in his own defense what Richard has done. Mowbray thinks this is a good defense. If you're playing Richard, what you should have him doing is trying to shake his head at Mowbray, kind of like Roy Cohn at McCarthy. Um, no, no, that's not the way to defend yourself. But this is how Mowbray defends himself. Um, now swallow down that lie, he says, and um, Bolingbroke has done what he wants. Then he goes on, for Gloucester's death, I slew him not. Okay, um, that's probably true. But to my own disgrace, neglected my sworn duty in that case. Now that's a pretty stupid thing to say. Because what he's essentially said is, I got the order to kill Gloucester, it was my duty to kill him because of the person who gave me the order to kill Gloucester. Um, but I finally couldn't overcome my own moral compunctions. And it wasn't I who killed Gloucester, even though the person that my duty was sworn to told me to do it. Um, so essentially, Bolingbroke has managed through superior cleverness to get Mowbray to do the accusing of Richard. Um, so this is not a good thing. Um, now we get to the situation where Bolingbroke insists upon a trial by combat. And we know, or we will find out, that Mowbray is considerably older than Bolingbroke. Um, anyone seeing this on stage will see that Bolingbroke is the dynamic, dashing, young, um, up-and-coming, um, heroic figure in the play, and Mowbray is part of the older generation. There's no way that Mowbray is going to win a trial by combat. Um, but if Bolingbroke wins the trial by combat, suddenly he becomes the Scott Brown of the era. He's going to defeat someone um, who has the support of the... Um, of the chief ruling figure in the country. He's going to look like the new up-and-coming person, and he's going to do it as a demonstration of all the ways in which um, the, the chief executive of the country has failed and the country is no longer behind him. So it's not a good thing then, just as it is not now for Obama a good thing for a Scott Brown or for a Bolingbroke um, to win this trial, to win this contest or this competition. So um, let's go forward to Act 1, Scene 3, um, where the competition occurs, where the trial by combat occurs. Um, notice that we've gone from public to private back to public. Um, now we're having a, an important public scene 
and the scene is also going to be done in a very ritualized way. So um, we get a little bit of introduction, um, and then everyone comes in, um, and um, Richard then says to the Herald, this is at line seven, Marshal, demand of yonder champion the cause of his arrival here in arms. Ask him his name and orderly proceed to swear him in the justice of his cause. So here we get a public ritual. Of course Richard knows his name. Of course Richard knows who's coming. Um, but we get the ritual and Mowbray says who he is and <coughs> that he fights and wants God on his side. Trumpets again. Bolingbroke comes in, same question, same ritual. Um, Bolingbroke says at line 35, he, he um, announces who he is. Harry of Harford, Lancaster, and Derby am I. Um, notice those three different names that he gives himself. Um, you will notice that almost all Shakespearean um, uh, speech prefixes when we're talking about um, in histories or tragedies when we're talking about um, um, the aristocracy are given by what they are duke of not what their actual name is Gloucester or, um, or York um, it's true that Gaunt is simply named Gaunt rather than Lancaster, but the very first line of the play tells you that he has both those names. Old John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster. Human beings get old. Dukes and dukedoms become time-honored. One is a kind of nice paraphrase of the other, but it's a paraphrase which looks at the difference between being a small d duke, that is John of Gaunt, like a small k king, Richard of Bordeaux, as he will be called later, um, and a large d duke, the Duke of Lancaster, um, or a large k king, king of England. Bolingbroke's excuse, you'll remember, for returning after his banishment is he says, I was banished Harford. My father was alive. And then I was Harford. But I return Lancaster. In fact, that's what Northumberland and Worcester in their conversation have said to each other. That is, well, my lords, the Duke of Lancaster is dead and living too, is the reply, for now his son is Duke. So the Duke of Lancaster was never banished. And once Bolingbroke becomes Duke of Lancaster, what he says is, I am no longer the banished person. So one of the things that he's relying on is the extent to which who he is has to do with what, who he is publicly, what his political role is. However, no one is really ever going to be interested in the story of a large K king or the story of a large D duke. Such a story would go something like, um, the king went to London, um, 
where there was an assassination and then the king went to um, Windsor for his coronation. And if you're only looking at the large K king, that's the same person. In English legal theory, that is the same person. Um, that person is known as the body politic. It's where we get that term, body politic. It's just not an interesting story. The king is, nothing can ever happen to the king. The king is just hanging out wherever the king hangs out. The interesting story is what happens to Richard, or what happens to Bolingbroke, or what happens to Gaunt. The interesting story can partly be told to you by speech prefixes. Um, that is, are we looking at a king, or are we looking at Richard? What happens in this play is Bolingbroke more and more claims his public status. I am Harford. I am Lancaster. I am, spoiler, king. <laughs> Whereas Richard is more and more the private person. We are king. Our leisure would not let us hear the contention between you two. But then that becomes to, I am king. And then that becomes to, that turns to, I am a king. And that becomes later on, I am a mockery king of snow. I am a king of beasts. If aught but beasts, I still had been a happy king of men. And that finally comes to, he's only Richard. Not King Richard, but Richard alone. So tragedy is about the descent from the uppercase regions of kingship to the lowercase fact of human experience, of, as Richard will put it, human subjectivity. That word, being subjected, being a subject, being subjected to pain and want and need and loss and mortality, that's the trajectory of tragedy. Yeah. So Richard is, that's a very good question. Where is Richard, should we, if we do the division in Shakespeare between older and younger generation, where does Richard stand there? Um, and the answer is he's transitional. That is, he is young enough, and he, and he um, a place where you can see him establishing himself, or Shakespeare establishing him as transitional, is the moment when Richard says to Bolingbroke, um, cousin, I am too young to be your father, but you are old enough to be my heir. That is, I'm, that is our relationship is a one and a half generation relationship. I'm too young for this. And yet, not so much too young that you can't be my heir right now. So Richard is really, he has some of Bolingbroke's shrewdness, but he uses it in or through the instrument of believing in his own sacred, not only appearance, but his own sacred being. 
Um, and that's shrewd when dealing with the older generation. With respect to the older generation, he's shrewd and has the shrewdness and the cleverness of the younger generation. But with respect to the younger generation, he's still a little bit behind the times. You know, I mentioned The Godfather before. I'll mention it a lot. Um, this is a little bit like what you see happening in The Godfather. That is, Don Corleone is really good with the older generation, but not so good with the younger generation. Um, that's part of the transition. It's the transition into a loss of power. Um, I'll just say this as a model for all of, all of the tragedy in Shakespeare and all of the tragedy we'll be looking at in the course. The great romantic critic, William Hazlitt, um, who loved Shakespeare, but as a political radical was also very suspicious about Shakespeare. Set of a Shakespeare play that we're not doing, but it's one of the um, most telling um, and ringing two-sentence descriptions of Shakespeare um, that there are, um, but it's one I'm going to disagree with. But what he says of Coriolanus is, which he sees as a very reactionary play, probably rightly sees it as a reactionary play, he says of it, the language, he says you shouldn't be surprised by this because the language of poetry falls in naturally with the language of power. The principle of poetry is a very anti-leveling principle. Anti-leveling there means anti-democratic. And what he means by that is something that's often um, uttered against any storytelling with heroes in it, which is that it's all in one way or another Atlas Shrugged. It's all in one way or another. Here is a fantastic exception to the mass of people who are all the same, but who really need a leader and a great man. Um, and if you're going to write plays, and if you're going to write spectacular Shakespearean plays, then what you have to have is some set of exceptional figures. And Shakespeare actually is, has the template for that given to him by the political system. These plays are about kings and queens, not about Willie Loman, but about Richard King, about Richard can't be higher man. Um, and that means that we're looking from the start at exceptional figures. That's Hazlitt's view. The language of poetry falls in naturally with the language of power. The principle of poetry is a very anti-leveling principle, very anti-democratic principle. Um, I think, however, that it's better to say that in Shakespeare, the language of poetry is the language of the loss of power, of the fall from power. If you think of Shakespearean figures as commanding figures, when they're commanding, they're like stars in the sky. There they are, way above all of us. But when they become interesting is when those stars start shooting downwards, when they collapse, when they fall. It's the fall that's spectacular. It's not having power, but it's the, it's the motion and the move and the transition from power to powerlessness. 
And Richard II, the reason we're starting with it is that Richard II is very explicit, absolutely explicit, about saying the more power you lose, the more intense your language becomes. The more power you shed, the more the very shedding of that power manifests itself in extraordinary, in the extraordinary language of poetry. Yeah. Well, he was he was a fr he was um, a romantic critic. He was a friend of um, of Wordsworth's and Coleridge's, um, and um, Wordsworth and Coleridge, um, and he was also a friend of Keats. Um, Wordsworth and Coleridge started out as very radical figures, um, who, after they hit about thirty five or so, became um, very conservative. Um, that's also an old story. Um, Hazlitt never did become conservative, um, and so he was troubled partly by the way poets seem to start out um, as um, radical, revolutionary, pro-democratic types, um, and how they then become more and more people who think, well, you know, order is really important, and um, we have to make sure that, that nothing radical really happens, and so on. So that's probably part of the, um, his own biographical and political context. Um, but he loved Shakespeare. He loved poetry. Um, but he was troubled about um, what he felt could be a disconnect between poetry and um, the radical politics that he was for. Um, Milton was, was one of Hazlitt's favorite poets, and in Milton he saw someone who stayed radical um, throughout. Yeah. You mean later on in the play? Yeah, like, like um, you know, when, when everybody is uh, going at it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, so you're right to bring that up because, because he is straightforward there. And what that is is it's a redo with Bolingbroke now in power of the scene that we saw um, in Act One. And we see how Bolingbroke handles the same situation, which is discontent, um, a sense of... Um, of um, absolutely appalling um, illegitimacy on behalf of the person who's now king, um, rebellion and treason, um, and Bolingbroke handles it very differently from Richard. There's no question that when Bolingbroke becomes king, one of the things that makes him a pretty good king, certainly good in Richard II, um, and pretty good in the sequels, is that he takes on um, the role of king as a role where he can no longer connive and be calculating as he was before he became king. Um, again, we see that when people who are really, really good campaigners get power, 
Um, it sometimes turns out to be the case that skills that made them really, really good at campaigning are not the same skills that they need for governing. Um, Bolingbroke is partly as good as he is because he's aware that he's got to do different things. They're not radically different, but they are different. And we'll certainly get to that, but you have an objection to make. Um, just, I mean, it kind of feels like what's going on is out of his hands. When? So, Later on or at the start? In, 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 the, in the group of all because, you know, by, by this point, you have people accusing No. Can you find that? Yeah, absolutely. But one thing that I want to point out to you is um, because I think this is this is a useful thing to know. In what I believe, um, although I haven't checked, but what I believe is the longest single speech that Bolingbroke has in Shakespeare. Um, this is why I said it's a good thing to have the complete Shakespeare in class. Sorry? Um, he's right. Uh, Fitzwalter says, line 36. Wait, wait, where are we? Sorry, uh, Act 4, Scene 1. Uh, Fitzwalter says, I heard that saying, Boltonly thus fakes it, that thou wert cause of noble Gloucester's death. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Act 4, Scene 1, line... 35. Line 36. Um... I'm sorry, 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 sorry. I was confusing Glosser with Lancaster. Um, I thought, yeah, no, my, my bad. Um, yeah, there is, so there is, there is um, the suggestion that in fact he was, and that does bring um, the, um, that again makes the connection bet um, between that scene in the play and the beginning of the play. But why do you think that then puts things out of um, Bolingbroke's hands? Yeah. He says the guy is lying about you know ever talking with Omar about you know having anything. Yeah. No. No. Things are definitely so devolving people, there. People are making wild yeah. Just to get ahead in Bolingbroke's you know new regime. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 we're 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 in the office at this point. <laughs> um, but the point is that Bolingbroke settles it all. Um, he's re he, he's not saying oh my god what am I going to do I don't know what to do. Um, he's fine with it. Um, he, see, he sees all these people, all this backstabbing and sniping, and, and um, it's not something that's going to unsettle him, and he is fine with it. Um, yeah, there's going to be trouble later, and one thing that I wanted to draw your attention to, just this is, this is useful, because this is in Henry IV, Part One. if you have um, the second edition Norton, the Red Norton, um, this is on page 1227. Um, otherwise, just turn to... Henry the Fourth, Part One, Act Three, Scene Two, Line Twenty Eight. Um, what's happening here? You'll remember that at the end of Richard the Second, Bolingbroke says, "Can no man tell me of my unthrifty son?" 
Um, that unthrifty son doesn't appear in Richard II, but he's the main character in Henry IV, Part I. Um, he's the king who will become, or he's the Prince of Wales who will become Henry V. And what he spends his time doing at the beginning of Henry IV, Part I, is drinking and partying and not doing what he's supposed to be doing in order to um, prepare himself for kingship. And finally, his father calls him in for one of those dreadful father-son alone talks. These are very rare in Shakespeare, by the way. It's an interesting fact about Shakespeare that um, there are really two scenes and only two scenes in Shakespeare where you have what is the classic scene of all of drama. Um, Shakespeare almost never does. The classic scene is mother, father, child, alone, talking together. If you want to know the center and heart of what dramatic anxiety and desire and, um, and pressure looks like, it's the scene where a child is in trouble with his or her parents. That scene is very, very rare in Shakespeare. There's almost always, if you have parents and a child together, um, as in Romeo and Juliet, there's almost always someone else on stage. Um, the two scenes in Shakespeare where you only have um, mother, father, well, let's just say, I, I, I don't want to be categorical about mother, father, daughter, but where you have mother, father, son alone on stage. One is in Richard II. It's the Duke and Duchess of York um, uh, discovering what Armerle is planning. The other is Hamlet. And in Hamlet, um, which, is, which is a major scene, the scene in Richard II a lot of people think wasn't written by Shakespeare. Um, but in Hamlet, um, which is a major scene, um, the mother um, is in her room with Hamlet, who seems to be crazy because the father is there as a ghost whom Hamlet can see, but Gertrude can't. And there's also a dead man lying by some, by some curtains. Um, so it's not your standard mother, father, son scene. Um, and that's where Shakespeare really pulls out the stops in it. Um, but in Henry IV, Part I, you, you have what's also a kind of rare scene in Shakespeare, although you would expect it to be a very common scene, which is the father and the son alone. And now Bolingbroke, as king, is really angry at Hal for the way he's been acting. Um, and Hal says, don't worry, you're going to see me improve, and you probably have heard that I've done things that I haven't actually done. Um, and let me find pardon. This is at line 28. Um, let me find pardon on my true submission. And um, Bolingbroke, now King Henry, replies, God pardon thee. So yeah, I agree. And then this awful understatement, yet let me wonder, Harry, at thy affections, which do hold a wing quite from the flight of all thy ancestors. So this is typical parent dressing down child. You are the first person in this family who has ever smoked a cigarette or ever done anything illegal. I'm ashamed of you. Let me wonder at thy affections, which do hold a wing quite from the flight of all thy ancestors. Thy place in council thou hast rudely lost. This is just a summary of everything he's done wrong. Um, 
which by thy younger brother is supplied, and art almost an alien to the hearts of all the court and princes of my blood. The hope and expectation of thy time is ruined, and the soul of every man prophetically do forthink thy fall. And now he says, when I was your age, we're now in that part of the speech, and when was he Hal's age? In Richard II. So when I was your age, had I so lavish of my presence been, so common hackneyed in the eyes of men, so stale and cheap to vulgar company, opinion that did help me to the crown, had still kept loyal to possession. So if I behaved like you, the public opinion, public support, which enabled me to become king, would never have been behind me, but would have kept, would have kept loyal to possession, and left me in reputeless banishment, a fellow of no mark nor likelihood. By being seldom seen, I could not stir, but like a comet I was wondered at, that men would tell their children, this is he. Others would say, where? Which is Bolingbroke? And then I stole all courtesy from heaven and dressed myself in such humility that I did pluck allegiance from men's hearts, loud shouts and salutations from their mouths, even in the presence of the crowned king. Thus did I keep my person fresh and new, my presence like a robe pontifical, near seen but wondered at. And so my state, seldom but sumptuous, showed like a feast and won by rareness such solemnity. So notice what he's saying is, I managed my image really, really carefully. I was very careful not to overexpose myself, but when I did appear, I made sure that I was dazzling. I said no to most projects, but made sure that the projects I appeared in would be spectacular to people. Unlike Richard, he goes on, um, um, the skipping king. He ambled up and down with shallow jesters and rash baven wits, soon kindled and soon burnt, carded his state, mingled his royalty with capering fools, had his great name profaned with their scorns, and gave his countenance against his name to laugh at jibing boys and stand the push of every beardless vain comparative, drew, grew a companion of the common streets and fiefed himself to popularity that being daily swallowed by men's eyes, they surfeited with honey and began to loathe the taste of sweetness whereof a little more than a little is by much too much. So when he had occasion to be seen, he was but as the cuckoo is in June, heard, not regarded, seen, but with such eyes as sick and blunted with community afford no extraordinary gaze such as is bent on sun-like majesty. Notice it's sun-like majesty when it shines seldom in admiring eyes, but rather everyone drowsed and hung their eyelids down, slept in his face, and rendered such aspect as cloudy men used to their adversaries, being with his presence glutted, gorged, and full. And in that very line, Harry, standest thou. So here he says what's happened in Richard II. This is the best single piece of writing on Richard II, unsurprisingly. It's Shakespeare. This is Shakespeare's summary from Bolingbroke's point of view of what happened. Bolingbroke managed his image. He didn't go on TV every night explaining passionately why things had to go his way. 
but when he appeared, everyone was interested in what he had to say. Um, he did not decide that he would just stay governor of Alaska and try to get on the talk shows every day, but he would resign, go away, and then he would come out with his book or something. I don't know where this, where this analogy is going. Um, but that is the way to take power is to manage your image optimally, and that, he says, was his plan and what he did. Richard did not manage his image, and the reason he didn't is that he thought he was magical. He thought not that he was sun-like, but that he was the sun. You can dazzle someone's eyes if you suddenly startle them with, with very great brightness and darkness. You'll dazzle them till their pupils contract, and then they stop being dazzled. Or you can dazzle their eyes if you're the sun. And nothing that they do with their pupils will ever get used to the brightness of sunlight. Bolingbroke knows what he is. You could almost say is a sudden movie image of the sun in a dark theater. You're watching dark, a dark movie, and then suddenly we cut to dazzling sunlight. And everyone in the theater says, oh, the sun, and they're dazzled, but not for long. Richard believed he really was the sun, and that was wrong, because people got used to him really fast. That is what Bolingbroke said was the difference between their procedures. Richard himself will say to O'Merle that when Bolingbroke went off to exile, this is how he acted. He wooed shrewd craftsmen, or he wooed, sorry, he wooed craftsmen with the craft of smiles. He's always on his knees before people and taking his hat off before them, as though to say, I'm not trying to overwhelm you with my presence. What's happening is I'm going away, and when I go away, you'll miss me. It's much better if you're a ruler to be missed, not to appear in public very much so that when you do appear in public you're effective, than to be in public all the time. And that's the difference between their procedures. But the reason I want us to look at that um, long speech by Bolingbroke, and we, uh, we didn't do all of it either, but the reason I wanted us to look at that long speech by Bolingbroke is is to show and to confirm the extent to which Richard and O'Merle are right about the shrewdness and craftiness of what he's doing. Um, and as I say, that's true from the start. But now let's look at Richard's shrewdness. Now, again, we're at the trial by combat. And what's a, the dynamic here, what's about to happen, um, what's set up to happen and set up really well to happen is that Bolingbroke and Mowbray are going to have this fight. There's going to be some action on stage. Everyone is interested in it. And guess who no one's going to be looking at? Richard. Richard is just going to be another audience member as this major fight goes on between Bolingbroke and Mowbray. And of course, Bolingbroke is likely to win. Um, the odds are all on his side because he's the young action hero and Mowbray is the corrupt 
um, and, um, and um, aging, dilapidated um, crook. And um, there's no question who's going to win this battle. And when the battle is over, England will have a new hero. And Richard will have someone he really has to deal with. So there, the battle is about to happen. We get tons and tons of setup. And then we get something which Shakespeare loves to do, and you'll see him do it over and over again, which is he gives us a very strong setup, and then he doesn't give us the moment we've been waiting for. So if you get to line 115 it's, um, or so, um, now there's going to be the fight. Um, the Lord Marshal says, sound trumpets and set forward competence. Everyone is on the edge of their seat. And then the Lord Marshal's next line is, stay, the king had thrown his warder down. Now, I want to just make a comment about stage directions in Shakespeare. Um, you will see that the stage directions before that are in brackets. That means they're editorial. Shakespeare very rarely writes stage directions. And the reason he doesn't write them is the speeches that he writes tells you what the stage directions are. We will know, for example, that Bolingbroke is kneeling later because Richard says, stop kneeling. Up, cousin, up. Um, we will know that um, Richard's um, friends have taken off their hats because Richard says, put your hats back on. In this case, what we have is as direct a stage direction as you can have put into a speech. Lord Marshall says, stay, the king had thrown his warder down. If you have the Norton, you will see that, that, that um, Kathy Mose very um, usefully gives us a stage direction in almost the same words. King Richard throws down his warder. I think it would have been slightly more witty if she had put it as, King Richard has thrown his warder down, or King Richard, um, his warder throws down, or something like that. Um, but the point is the stage direction is given to you by the speech. And the reason that point matters is because Shakespeare, it tells us that Shakespeare knows how this will play out on stage. Everyone's eyes will be on Bolingbroke and Mowbray. Richard on stage, this is stagecraft. Richard may be on stage and he may throw his warder down, but no one's going to notice it in the audience. We don't have spotlights. We don't have music. We don't have suddenly everyone stopping in a spot on Richard throwing his warder down. You can do that with modern technology, but not in the year, in the year 1596. Um, so how do you do it? You have a character saying, stop looking at them. Look at him. He's just done something really surprising. And What's happened here is Richard has upstaged Bolingbroke. And that was the point, that the struggle heretofore, Richard wins round one. Or it looks like he's about to win round one, which is Bolingbroke has been setting things up to upstage Richard and be the hero. And now Richard upstages him. Look at me, I've thrown my warder down. Now look at these people who are going to bring dissension and battle into my kingdom. They're both bad. I banish them both. So that's pretty clever on Richard's part. Now what I want to suggest to you, just as we go through um, another couple of elements later in this scene, is that in the chess game that Richard and Bolingbroke are playing, Richard has just played a really good 
seeming move. He's resourceful and he's come up with something that most of us would not have thought he would come up with. This, by the way, is what he did historically as well. Um, in the source, that's what Richard does. But Shakespeare sets it up so it's a great dramatic moment with a surprising climax or anticlimax. At least it's an anticlimax for Bolingbroke, although it starts looking like a climax for Richard. Um, so it looks like a really good move. Now, I want to suggest to you, um, I'm not going to prove this, um, except through the way things work out. There is no proof, but I think it's the best way to read this, that Bolingbroke was expecting just this. That is, Bolingbroke, like a really good chess player, a really good chess player has to be one move ahead of her opponent. And Bolingbroke, like a really good chess player, has set up a more subtle trap than the trap Richard avoids. If any of you are chess players, you'll know that what good chess players will do is um, set up traps. But if they're playing against good chess players, the other chess player will see the trap and avoid it. So what good chess players will, really good chess players do, is set up decoy traps. They'll make a move that looks like it's designed to get the other player to fall into a trap, but it's in fact avoiding that trap that leads to the real trap that has been set up. And this is always lovely in movies, um, in Battle of Wits movies, in Battle of Wits stories, when someone falls into a trap by thinking that they've avoided a more obvious trap. Um, there are many, many examples of this. That, I think, is what Bolingbroke is doing here. So the trap is banishment is good for Bolingbroke, not bad for him. Richard thought that he'd won, but notice that he's still being careful. So what he says is, I can't believe you guys were going to try and have war going on in my kingdom. This is awful. Um, and so he says now at line <coughs> um, 130. Um, three, therefore we banish you our territories. You, cousin Harford, notice now that he's not Henry but Harford, which is going to be a mistake on Richard's part because he's banished, that means that Bolingbroke is banished Harford. He's banished as Harford, but he will return as Lancaster and his banishment won't be in effect anymore. You, cousin Harford, Upon pain of life, till twice five summers have enriched our fields, shall not regreet our fair dominions, but tread the stranger paths of banishment. Um, notice Bolingbroke isn't surprised. He accepts it immediately. In public, your will be done. This must my comfort be. At least, he says, I'll have this. This must my comfort be. That sun that warms you here shall shine on me. And those his golden beams to you here lance shall point on me and gild my banishment. So he says, oh, of course, I'm happy to be banished because I'll at least be able to think that the sun shining on you is shining on me too. And I'll look at the sun and think of you and I'll just feel so privileged <laughs> about that. Um, so there's very heavy irony here that in some sense he was prepared for. But at least Richard thinks it got rid of him for 10 years. Now, in fact, Richard is thinking a move beyond that. What he's thinking is my first bargaining position will be 10 years. 
and then I'll do the good cop thing and make it six years. He then turns to Mowbray and says, Norfolk for thee remains a heavier doom which I with some unwillingness pronounce. Now notice that word unwillingness. Um, one of the great and wonderful ironies in this play is that whenever anyone says that they're willing to do something, it means they're unwilling to do it. And whenever anyone in this play says they're unwilling to do something, it means they're willing to do it. They're happy to do it. Um, the, the word willing and the word unwilling in Richard II is always a lie. Um, is always means the opposite of what it says. Again, as in The Godfather, you make someone an offer they can't refuse, and so they sign a contract. Um, but to make someone an offer they can't refuse is to engage in the fiction that they're willing to do it and making them say that they're doing something willingly, that they're doing something unwillingly. If you say, as Henry will say in Henry IV Part One, he says, um, you know that I was unwilling to become king. It just happened to me. But no, it didn't just happen to him. It was what he arranged. So here he says to you, Norfolk for thee remains a heavier doom which I with some unwillingness pronounce, which means now I get to the part which is easier and I'm happy to do it. Thy, the, slow, the sly slow hour shall not determinate the dateless limit of thy dear exile. The hopeless word of never to return breathe I against thee upon pain of life. And Mowbray now tells us by contrast how much Bolingbroke must have anticipated this. A heavy sentence, my most sovereign liege, and all unlooked for from your highness' mouth. So he's surprised, which lets us know that Bolingbroke wasn't. Now you can say he's partly surprised because the punishment is worse. Um, nevertheless, the surprise is a surprise at the outcome of what they thought was a trial by combat. Now notice, though, the shrewdness of what Richard is doing here. What he's doing is he's saying, Mowbray is someone I'm not really afraid of. He's my friend, and I can trust him. I can therefore make him a scapegoat and satisfy my enemies by firing him. Again, we live in an age where you will see um, people in government doing the same thing, throwing people under the train is what it's called these days. So Mowbray is thrown under the train, but Bolingbroke, not so much. He might be thrown under, I don't know, the kitty train at the zoo. Um, because Bolingbroke is only banished for 10 years, Mowbray is banished for life. So basically Richard is saying, look, I actually am on Bolingbroke's side. I'm making things not as bad for him as for Mowbray, whom everyone thinks of as my henchman. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, it's, right now it's 10 years, but he's about to take four years off of that. So, the whole, so what you can see is, first, he, so there are three things. Mowbray forever. Bolingbroke for 10 years. Oh, is 10 years too much? Sorry, guys. Okay, six years. Um, so the point is, he sets up a situation where he can show great generosity to Bolingbroke, but part of the context of that is that he's not showing the same generosity to Mowbray. 
Um, so the, his generosity to Bolingbroke looks even better for that reason. Yeah. Um, you said, and it seems that Mowbray is older than Bolingbroke. Mm -hmm. So how far departed is the 10 years from the life sentence, really? Because you mean if he'd said... You, if, if, if you banish an old man for 10 years, it, he, there's a chance that he'll... Yeah, so, but, but that's, a, that's right. And that's a way of saying that um, it might have had the same effect as it will with Gaunt. Because what Gaunt's about to say is, six years, 10 years, for me, I'm going to be dead either way. That's probably true, or we can think of that as being true for Mowbray as well. Um, but then the whole point is like giving, you know, um, uh, Madoff, what did he get, three life sentences? Can, three, three consecutive, how many? 150 consecutive life sentences. And they're, yeah, so, oh, 150 years. Okay, so it's not, I'm not expecting any of us to be around when he gets out. Um, <laughs> And um, the, the idea is that you're, you're um, putting the sentence, expressing the sentence, um, formulating the sentence in a way um, that makes the punishment worse than other ways of formulating sentences that have the same practical effect. And the reason to do that is to contrast Mowbray's banishment with Bolingbroke's so that Richard looks like he's doing Bolingbroke a favor out of the goodness of his heart. So Richard is trying to get his relationship to, to Bolingbroke and the, um, the, the generosity or the comparative generosity of his treatment of Bolingbroke um, to, to, to um, redound to his own credit. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. The farther away Mowbray is, the less he's going to be able to say, but I was so loyal. I, you know, didn't kill Gloucester when he wanted me to, and I gave him all this money and so on. So yeah, it solves a lot of problems for Richard. Um, but what I want us to get to in, in Act One um, is um, Bolingbroke and Gaunt complain um, and um, Richard then, this is what you're asking about at line 201, Richard says to um, Gaunt, Uncle, even in the glasses of thine eyes, I see thy grieved heart, thy, si thy sad aspect, hath from the number of his banished years plucked four away. Six frozen winters spent, returned with welcome home from banishment. So he gets six years, you know, the, the, um, the um, term of a, of a senatorship. Um, and Bolingbroke again with heavy irony, how long a time lies in one little word for lagging winters and for wanton springs end in a word. Such is the breath of kings. Again, you're so great. You can just give me four years like that. Um, and then Gaunt says, I thank my liege that in regard of me he shortens four years of my son's exile, but little vantage shall I reap thereby, for ere the six years that he, that he hath to spend can change their moons and bring their times about, my oil-dried lamp and time-bewasted light shall be extinct with age and endless night, my inch of taper shall be burnt and done and blindfold death, not let me see my son Richard. Why, Uncle, how many years to live? I don't want to hear this depressing stuff. Not that I'm depressed by it. Later, when he hears that Gaunt is dying, he says, 
um, and he's supposed to go see him. He says, pray, pray God we may make haste and come too late. Um, a standard thing to think. Um, he just doesn't want to deal with us. Just one sec. Um, Gaunt says, but not a minute, king, that thou canst give. This is important. Shorten my days thou canst with sudden sorrow and pluck nights from me, but not lend a morrow. The breath of kings can't add time. It's a little bit like, um, is it Click, the Adam Sandler movie, the fast forward movie? It's a little bit like that. You can always fast forward, but you can't rewind. Um, that's kingship. Shorten my days thou canst with sudden sorrow and pluck nights from me, but not lend a morrow. Thou canst help time to furrow me with age, but stop no wrinkle in his pilgrimage. Thy word is current with him for my death, but dead thy kingdom cannot buy my breath. And Richard then says, and this is what I wanted us to see, thy son is banished upon good advice where to thy tongue a party verdict gave. That is, um, if you read the footnotes, what you'll know is that Richard, after he threw his gauntlet down, his warder down, had a two-hour conference with the nobles and then pronounced the banishment. And um, this is all being telescoped here, but what he's basically saying is, you agreed that this would be a good idea, that I should throw my warder down and banish both of them. And Gaunt says, it's true. You urged me as a judge, but I had rather you would have bid me argue like a father. Alas, I looked when some of you should say I was too strict to make mine own away, but you gave leave to my unwilling tongue against my will to do myself this wrong. So here I have to take back what I said. Um, Gaunt is straightforward, and his tongue was unwilling, and this was against his will. But what I want you to notice is that in the same way that Bolingbroke got Mowbray to do his dirty work, got the person who was his antagonist to do his dirty work, Richard very cleverly knew that the best person to ask for advice about whether Bolingbroke should be banished or not was his father. Because his father would err on the side of loyalty so he didn't seem to be erring on the side of partiality. So it's an incredibly shrewd move on Richard's part to get Gaunt to be the person who voted for the banishment of Bolingbroke. This dynamic, which we'll talk about throughout the rest of the play, but this dynamic where you get your antagonist to choose to do what you want them to do goes throughout the play. And of course, the major league version of that is Richard's abdication. That's the major league version of that. OK, so we will have a quiz on Friday. Um,